You're listening to episode number 16 of The Green Elephant in the Room. Welcome to The Green Elephant in the Room, conversations about and solutions to restoring the health of our planet. Here is your host, Rico. Last episode was Extinction, Part 1. This episode is Extinction, Part 2. Understanding the history of the human-animal relationship is key to the preservation of nature and of curbing the obliteration of the native wild animal and plant populations. We love animals. We have an ancient connection to the millions of other creatures we share the earth with. But that connection has changed considerably in the last century when Western society's perception of nature underwent a seismic shift. For most of the preceding millennia, nature has been both the principal resource and a major threat to human well-being. Even as it provides humans with the basic raw materials and foodstuffs for survival, nature also puts them constantly at risk. People throughout history lived in close proximity to animals. Humans have always had an utter dependence on animals. Think about it. For most of human history, any efficient land travel was done with horses or camels. Very little farm work could have been accomplished without beasts of burden, such as plow horses and oxen. Animals and people have been living together for thousands of years, but the past 100 years have been extraordinary in the amount of change in those relationships. In the last century, people have significantly changed their perceptions, their relationships, and their uses of animals and animal products. Many of these changes have occurred in our lifetimes. Things like hunting, pet ownership, veganism, and the moral question of how we treat animals in laboratory experiments and on factory farms. Even today, some of us grew up on farms and had considerable contact with livestock and wildlife. We knew that dairy cows were kept to provide milk, beef cattle and pigs were slaughtered to provide meat, and chickens provided eggs. Wildlife living on the farm or nearby was often hunted by farm families to provide meat and skins. Even though we understood, or perhaps because we understood the primary role of animals in our lives, we were often in a close relationship that gave us a perspective of our interdependence with the natural world. Today, less than 1% of families in the U.S. are engaged in raising livestock. Few children have seen or experienced the cycle of life and death of plants and animals. Few know firsthand where their milk, cheese, eggs, meat, vegetables, and fruit actually come from. Today, for most urban dwellers, even with all of our access to unlimited information, we actually understand many animals far less than our ancestors did. 
Our modern Western societies provide most people with very little exposure to animals, except for pets. Having pets is the only reference to the animal kingdom most of us have. While this connection to our pets is powerful, it sentimentalizes our view of animals and prevents our appreciation and protection of the natural world. We need to stop thinking of nature through the lens of our cats and dogs. We desperately need a more active understanding about the way we consume, interact with, and imagine animals that will help us consider carefully about the choices we make that impact the living biosphere and this extinction calamity that we are now engulfed in. Caring for animals may have shaped human evolution. The seemingly unique human-animal bond still persists in modern societies. For instance, more U.S. households have pets than have children. Take domestic dogs as a prime example. Why do you think dogs are so friendly? Ever since evolving from a shared ancestor with wolves at least 10,000 years ago, domestic dogs have helped us find food and protect us from becoming dinner ourselves, all the while providing a friendly face and a wagging tail. The reason for that? Breeding. We have altered their genes to exhibit the traits we desire. We have designed dogs to make them more sociable and to follow our directions and commands more effectively. Dogs have been bred to be sympathetic to us. Here's an interesting reality. If humans disappeared from the earth, domesticated dogs would also disappear. Put another way, if there were no humans, there would be no dogs. Just look at the names of many of the popular breeds tell us where they were bred. The German Shepherd, the Belgian Sheepdog, the English Bulldog, the Alaskan Malamute, the Chinese Sharpay, the Irish Setter, the French Poodle, and dozens more. One hundred years ago, nearly all dogs were kept for herding animals, pulling power, hunting, tracking, or protection, and were seldom allowed in the house, almost never in the bedroom. Today, most dogs in the U.S. are kept in the house for companionship and only occasionally kept for work. Current studies also show that 60 to 80% of dogs sleep with their owners at night in the bedroom. This indicates the closeness of relationship and is a major change in our attitudes towards treating pets as family. Today, the media and most people consider pets as part of their families. The point being that our sentimental relationship with our common pets gives us a deceptive concept of wild animals and the natural world. In our Western culture, we have shaped animals to fit human needs. It makes it difficult to understand the needs of wildlife outside of the pet realm. We love animals. But most of us rarely ever encounter anything considered wild outside of a few birds or insects. The only wild we bump into are hardy urban creatures that many would consider pests, such as city pigeons, 
raccoons, and coyotes. Yet our lives, particularly our children's lives, are adorned with animals, from teddy bears and plush puffins and bean-stuffed hippos to embroidered bunnies on socks and toucans on our cereal. Our lives are crowded with animal images. In my own home, butterflies dance on wind chimes. Bald eagles perch on flagpoles. A dolphin is silk-screened on a tote bag. Bunnies hop across aprons, and owls embellish a coat rack. We bestow our sports teams with big cat and raptor names. Hundreds of thousands of people enjoy watching the Michigan State Wolverines in the fall, even though a wolverine has not been spotted in the state in almost a century. Most of us are of the generation that seems especially resigned to watching things we encountered in childhood disappear: landline telephones, newspapers, handwritten letters. But leaving your kids a world without wild animals feels like a special tragedy, even if it's hard to rationalize why it should. The truth is that most of us will never experience the Earth's endangered animals as anything more than beautiful ideas. They are figments of our shared imagination, recognizable from television to T-shirts and advertising symbols. Maybe we never outgrow the imaginary animal kingdom of our childhood. Maybe it's the one we are trying to save. We are in the midst of the Earth's sixth mass extinction crisis. Harvard biologist E. O. Wilson estimates that 30,000 species per year, or three species per hour, are being driven to extinction. Compare this to the natural background rate of one extinction per million species per year, and you can see why he refers to this as a crisis unparalleled in the last 60 million years. In a strange way, we miss animals. Not that many years ago, our skies and waters and forests were filled with creatures. Without a doubt, animal sightings would rank high on anyone's travel experience. Two of the most amazing places you can experience wildlife are Antarctica and the Galapagos Islands. Because the animals there are protected and remote, they have never developed a fear of humans. You can walk right up to seals. Penguins, iguanas, and blue-footed boobies—they will not run or fly away. They just stare at you, like they're saying, "What are you looking at?" With the popularity of sites like Instagram, everybody wants to take their picture with wildlife. I have noticed that there's a progression. Here's me with an animal in the background. Here's me standing next to the animal. Here's me feeding the animal. Here's me snuggling with the animal. Because the problems created by humanity are global and progressive, and because the prospect of a point of no return is fast approaching, the problem can't be solved piecemeal. There is just so much water left for fracking, so much rainforest cover available for soybeans and oil palms, so much room left for the atmosphere to store excess carbon. Meanwhile, we thrash about with no particular goal in mind, other than economic growth, unfettered consumption, and personal happiness. 
The impact on the rest of the biosphere is negative, and everywhere the environment is becoming unstable. It is instructive to look at the enterprise of extinction management today. You could call it the new Noah's Ark, referring to the biblical story of Noah building a ship to save animals from drowning. But while Noah rescued everything in sight, today's conservation is for beautiful and useful species only. For endangered species, it pays to be a large mammal with sad eyes that cuddles its babies. Glamorous animals, big predators, and above all, the extremely cute and fuzzy stand a chance of getting people to protect them and their habitats. Ugly animals, as judged by human eyes, are far more likely to be left aside when humans draw up conservation plans. Anyone care to save the diamondback rattlesnake? There's even a buzzword in the nature business, charismatic megafauna. These are the big, cool animals that bring in tourists, photographers, and conservation dollars. There's broad support for the big flagship animals like whales, pandas, polar bears, and elephants. As for plants, they're barely even on the list of candidates for protection. We also protect commercially important species. Salmon stocks are important to us. Bluefin tuna are the objects of effort to prevent overfishing. And farmers are desperate to save the honeybee from whatever mysterious threats are wiping out colonies. And the losers in the competition for protection are mostly reptiles and amphibians. Amphibians have the dubious distinction of being the most endangered groups of animals in the world. And ironically, amphibians survived the last extinction event and have been on the Earth for over 300 million years, well before the dinosaurs. Other animals that are endangered but that walked or swam with dinosaurs and survived are the duckbill platypus, marine sea turtles, sharks, snakes, and bees, and a small weasel-like mammal that was our ancient ancestor. The species that will survive the world's sixth extinction event are destined to be the ones we decide to save. If we are capable of securing large habitat protection, that will go a long way toward protecting that big predator, be it a whale or tuna or wolf or a tiger. Then this large protected area will also preserve many small species. For conservation to succeed, it must work on a larger scale, focusing not on preserving single species in small islands of wilderness, but on large landscapes and entire ecosystems. Trying to save a species by solving a particular problem it faces, then walk away and watch it thrive, is largely a delusion. Right now, nature is unable to stand on its own. Scientists tell us that the vast majority of species and their ecosystems can be saved within half the planet's surface. That means turning half of the Earth's surface back to the wild. Protecting half of the Earth may seem like a radical proposal to some people. What is really radical is our rampant destruction of the biosphere and the massive loss of wildlife that we are engaged in now. 
notably the vertebrate animals and the flowering plants. They are declining at an accelerating rate due almost entirely to human activity. This provocative proposition comes from the Harvard biologist E. O. Wilson. In his book, Half Earth, he suggests that because people are already pouring into cities, we could leave about half of the Earth's surface mostly free of humans. So wild plants and animals can live there unimpeded as they did for so long before humans arrived. With people already leaving rural areas all over the world to move to the cities, big regions are emptier of humans than they were a century ago and getting emptier still. Many villages now have populations of under a thousand and continue to shrink as most of the young people leave. So emptying half the earth of its humans wouldn't have to be imposed. It's happening anyway. All of this can be done. All of this needs to be done if we are going to make it through the emergency centuries we face so we can pass along something to the future generations as a good home. To quote Professor Wilson, he stated that to strive against the odds on behalf of all of life would be humanity at its most noble. You can find more inspiration and more on his plan on my webpage. The world hasn't ended, but the world as we know it has, even if we don't quite know it yet. We imagine we still live on that old planet, but it's a different place, a different planet. The challenges humans face today would be like landing on an alien planet that in some ways resembles Earth, but whose ecosystems are very different to require new ways of life. We're worried now with good reason about climate change and the fact that we are racing toward almost lethal conditions for life as a whole if we continue on our present path. But what's less recognized is that the same thing exists for biodiversity and the variety of life that make up the natural ecosystems in the world. We're moving toward a point where the whole thing could begin to unravel and become a perilous cascade with disastrous results for all life on Earth. You can see why scientists refer to it as a crisis unparalleled in human history. This literally is the tip of the melting iceberg. Earth has been many planets over its lifetime, and even though we've proven to be a destructive species, we have not produced anything even close to the levels of wanton destruction and carnage seen in previous planetary cataclysms. Humanity has not yet engineered the sixth major mass extinction in Earth's history. In a world sometimes short on it, this is good news, and thankfully, we still have time. However, left unchecked, the heating of the sky and the oceans and the annihilation of the living biotic systems is putting our futures on the same scale as some of the worst events in geological history. Maybe this is the destiny of the planet. Maybe this is our destiny. One constructive thing about mass extinction events is that they're often reset buttons where you can change what dominates the globe. 
That's how we became to rule the entire planet. Artists sometimes portray a small, rat-like creature at the feet of dinosaurs. If that asteroid had not blasted into our planet 65 million years ago and disrupted the established order, we may not be here. All previous mass extinctions were followed by an explosion of evolutionary creativity. What is remarkable is that scientists are already seeing the first hints of new species. Genes are jumping around. Molecular genetics are finding that the mixing between species DNA is more common than previously suspected. The evolutionary bounce back from mass extinction means that life on Earth will do just fine. Thank you very much. If nature can bounce back from an asteroid hit, it could probably bounce back from us. As usual, what can be done? The organisms that surround us in such beautiful profusion are the product of 3.8 billion years of evolution by natural selection. We are effectively undoing the beauty and the variety and the richness of the world, which has taken tens of millions of years to reach. However, because of our technology, we have walled ourselves off from the natural world. The environmental crisis is really a crisis of consciousness, a crisis of the heart. During this critical period of human history, we have the responsibility of overcoming the greatest challenge humanity has ever faced. It is that complex, and it is that simple. It all begins with conquering the idea that you are too small to make a difference. Beyond that hurdle, the possibilities are endless, and the sky is the limit. In fact. There is so many innovative solutions that I would encourage you to visit my website for background information, volunteer opportunities, motivation, inspiration, and I threw in a few dreams too. Thanks for listening to the Green Elephant. Visit us on our website bitly/greenelephantintheroom. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash green elephant in the room, where you will find valuable information and links to everything that was addressed on today's show and more. Tune in, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share us with your friends. The green elephant in the room. With this episode, we are ending the first season of the Green Elephant. We want to thank all of you that have written. Your comments and encouragements are greatly appreciated. Even though these issues are finally getting more attention from politicians, the media, and ordinary citizens, considering the planet-wide scale of the climate and eco issues, it is not even close to adequate with the scope of the crisis. In the new season later this summer, the Green Elephant is going to redouble its efforts to keep you informed on the issues and pair this knowledge with clear and effective strategies and solutions to create the green future we all want. Music